I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite Lorecast on the Citadel. Welcome to the Mass Effect Lorecast, the podcast where we explore the vast universe of lore behind the Mass Effect games. We'll talk about all the details you may have missed, ask the hard questions, and more. Specters, welcome back to the Mass Effect Lorecast. This is your host, Tom, or Robots, and I'm here with N7, the legend, for our 51st episode. This is the end of our first year of podcast. This is not the end of the show. <laughs> this is the end of the first year of podcast. This is the last episode of year one. We are on the precipice of a brand new year. Sam, how does it feel? Uh, it feels surreal. It really does. You know, 51 episodes. Wow. I, it already has me looking to the future and thinking about episode 100. Right. Wow. All, You're just like I'm, doubling up the numbers already. You're just I like, am. I'm I'm all in. Um, what is episode 100 going to be? Let's just off oh, the top of your head. A, it's, that's a greatest hits. Greatest hits Lorecast episode. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Right. So we, 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 we look back. We take our, our best gags. Uh, <laughs> okay. We compile them into a uh into one of those episodes i was hoping we would just be danny devolis that's our danny devolis episode it's a series of terrible accents is is episode number 100 it's our best accents episode best and worst accents compilation it'll be like one of those old sitcom episodes where because they were like running out of budget they just did like uh hey remember this time this happened and it's just clips from all the old episodes Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like one of those. <laughs> yeah, Family Guy does that as as kind of like a like a gag almost on their own viewers, um, and <laughs> so yeah, I kind of got the idea there. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, so we were talking about the uh, the Citadel and the uh, Council on the last episode. What are we talking about today? Right. Well, uh, so just as kind of a recap, in, in case someone's tuning into this episode and they didn't catch the last episode, um, well, number one, go back and listen to it. Number two, <laughs> in, case, in case you haven't, um, the formation of the Citadel Council is an event that has an impact for thousands of years to come after that. And it forever changes the Milky Way in the current cycle uh, in the Mass Effect universe. It is probably uh, not unique. It probably happened that way in previous cycles. Uh, it happened that way for the Protheans, probably the Inner Sandin as well. Um, and yet there is this level, even though they've had thousands of years to kind of uh, form this council, this, this overarching governmental body uh, that's based on cooperation, even though they've had that, there is this certain level of vagary to their authority. It's not well defined. And they are also pretty exclusive of the other alien races. You know, there's like something like 10 or, or, or 15. I can't even remember now. It took us like 17 weeks to alone to get through the races of Mass Effect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch. Um, and, and yet there's only three. There's only three races represented as Citadel counselors in the beginning of Mass Effect 1. Uh, when we get there, four at the end of Mass Effect 1 with humanity. Um, and so there is this exclusivity, uh, element to it as well. Yeah. So you said last episode that we would get more into the history of their decisions. So where do we start with that? Yes. Uh, so about a year ago, we discussed the Rachni Wars and the Krogan Rebellions. Uh, those were some of our earliest episodes. I think those were the second and third episodes. And so these are two huge conflicts enormous conflicts with massive ramifications for the rest of the lore in Mass Effect. And these are these, these conflicts where the Citadel Council made decisions that would forever impact the Milky Way. Number one, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna recap the events in great depth because we, we already did that. This will be a 12 hour episode. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, we had episode number two, I think, on the Rachni Wars. If you're interested, definitely go back and check that out. I think that we did a pretty good job recapping that. But the point of the matter is that the Rachni are discovered when a, Solar a team of Solarian explorers activates a dormant mass relay. They uncover the system. They go in. They're like, hey, what's here? And turns out it's killer lobster spiders. Uh, Crap. 
not very again. intelligent ones. <laughs> um, and, and so the Rachni end up posing a huge threat to the all of the Milky Way. And it turns out the, that the STG work on the Solarian special tasks group, who we also did an episode on by now. Mm-hmm. And see, you see that now, like the foundational knowledge from which we've already imparted onto onto the Mass Effect listeners. Um, the more you know. This, this is why I I have wanted to cover the these things in the order in which we've covered them. Um, I feel like this is like a professor saying, oh, there's going to be an exam later and it's going to be cumulative, but yeah, <laughs> no exam. Um, we could do an exam. Can, we should we have a certification. Exam. We should have a certif- we should have a test that if you pass, then you get officially certified. You get a milk stamp. Milk. Mass Effect lore cast. Milk. Um, You're milk certified. <laughs> got milk. Um that's so lame. <laughs> <laughs> we would definitely get sued by the dairy association right i mean <laughs> i mean it's not spelled the same it would be legend dairy mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and i'm gonna go with that pun um <laughs> the uh so the sdg they uplift the krogans to use as soldiers for the citadel council this is a very important element they're uplifting the krogans as soldiers in this war against the Rachni, and they're doing it on behalf of the council. These soldiers are uh, reporting to the council because who else would they report to? They can't report to the Salarian government. They can't report to the Turian hierarchy. Well, number one, because the Turians weren't a member of the Citadel Council yet. They can't. Uh, they can't report to the Asari republics. So they have to report to the Citadel Council, Krogan soldiers. Fast forward, the Krogans feel like they have not been rewarded fairly. They have not been appreciated enough for their role, their instrumental role in helping put down the Rachni and the Rachni Wars. And the Krogan, they expand. They're uh, very fast and prolific breeders. So they take over planets with colonizing them very quickly. Then they start to run into some problems because they're colonizing planets that are already colonized. And they refuse they refuse to leave one of these planets called lucia in response the council orders the specters to to basically uh conduct a strike against some of the leading krogan uh factions and the krogans don't take kindly to that so this kicks off the krogan rebellions these rebellions last for a long time they're very bloody uh as part of the rebellions uh <laughs> we can we can throw this back a little bit to to, to this episode when i said that they were slamming ass uh, <laughs> that definitely needs to be on the best of episode yes yeah they they the krogan were slamming ass because they were they were pissed off um and no they were slamming asteroids for anyone that wasn't there at the time and doesn't and doesn't get that joke i was saying that they were slamming asteroids into planets as weapons uh-huh. but i didn't say teroids <laughs> it was a problem it was a whole big thing um <laughs> at any rate the krogan are not happy they start using asteroids as weapons on turian home like garden planets <laughs> they start using I'm, asses I'm still weapons. Laughing. <laughs> yeah, kind of like your dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Um, okay. All right. <laughs> oh, I have to slamming breathe. ass. Breathing. Good, good comedic throwback from I don't know how many weeks ago. Oh man, um, that was like almost a, that was an early episode. That was. That, I mean, it was. That was like ten months ago at this point. Yeah. <clears> wow. <throat> um, <clears throat> anyway um (laughs) the krogan uh are quickly put down by the genophage the uh the thing the the genetic alteration that is created and researched by the salarians through the stg and the turians deploy it now this is a point of contention in the lore i think because the citadel council has to date remained uh a little bit absolved of any direct guilt for deploying the genophage but they invited the turians on to the council after they did that (laughs) if you didn't approve of that i don't think you'd invite them onto the council (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and if I'm getting this timeline a little bit mixed up and they invited them onto the council and then they did it, they, I mean, they still didn't kick them off the council. The right. Turians very clearly deployed the genophage before the Salarians were ready to use it. The Salarians just wanted a deterrent. The Turians said, screw that, we're doing it. Um, so unless, I, unless, unless they were more than okay with it. I think they were like, uh, unless publicly they were like, oh, they maybe we didn't tell them to go ahead. But like behind the scenes, they were like, yeah, you guys made the right choice. We just have to save face. I'm thinking that's exactly what it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it seems like anyway. So and at the very baseline, I doubt that the council did not know about it beforehand. And I seriously doubt that they didn't allow it. Um, so the results of the Krogan rebellions, this is where the Citadel Council decision making comes into play, are huge. Uh, first of all, the specters are formed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big decision. Second of all, uh, there's two huge pieces of legislation that are enacted by the council following the Krogan rebellions. Number one is a piece of legislation which creates something called the Council Demilitarization Enforcement Mission. Okay. Very, very official, yes. right? What's that um, mean? In layman's terms, this is a micromanaging body around Krogan space to make sure they don't act up again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, All right. It's it's very uh, very condescending, I think, and it and it's uh, very punitive. Think of the Treaty of Versailles and World War One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a babysitting and, ring around. Them. Yes. Yes, it ensures the Krogan can never become a quote-unquote threat again. Uh, but it's based at Pildea Station, and abbreviated it is CDEM. So uh, CDEM's patrol patrols oversee the entire Krogan DMZ, demilitarized zone. This is part of the lore right now that I'm reading from. CDEM logs all ships passing through the DMZ and has the right to board and search them at any time and for any reason. This is kind of like, this is unchecked, right? This power yeah. could definitely be abused. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's also no, super offensive to the Krogan. No protection against search and seizure here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a big deal. And I think that we would probably see more protests if the Krogan were more civically inclined, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I see in, in chat, uh, Day Day Late says literally 1984. Yes, 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 1984. Another Orwell reference. Wow, that's two in two episodes. Yeah. Now. Also, I don't know that I would want to be one of the members of the teams that has to uh, board one of the Krogan ships with a bunch of pissed off Krogan that are getting boarded when they don't want to be boarded. <laughs> that's, yeah, you, that's nobody's happy on either side of that equation. Not to mention that it's demeaning. Oh, even yeah. If the Krogan are not doing anything wrong. Right. Because even if they're not doing anything wrong, they're not, they don't want to be boarded for no reason. And they're Krogan. They're going to be super pissed off and super ready to protect their own ships. Because right. they yeah, they're because they're, you know, pissed off that like this is super demeaning. And, you know, and they already don't like anyone messing with their business and they already lost the war. And what else do they have to lose? So they're going to push back and some of them are going to be violent about it. And they're freaking Krogan. So they can just smash your face in, <laughs> you know? Like. Yeah. And if they react violently, then that's it's going to be used as further justification for further discrimination. Of course. Of course. So like yeah. the whole situation just is totally sucky. Yes. And there was an armistice that was signed at the end of the Krogan rebellions. And under that armistice, the CDEM is responsible for ensuring that the Krogan do not obtain starship mounted weapons at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the penalty for smuggling those is punishable by death by spacing. That's fun. That seems reasonable. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Oh, you had a weapon on your ship. Like, and, and by the way, starship mounted weapons, I think, could be construed as anything from like they strapped an M3 Predator or I forget what it's called. M something Predator, the pistol, the basic pistol. Right. They strapped right. it to their hood. That's uh, that's a starship mounted weapon. Guess who's getting out the airlock? Right, right. That's like one of those like, you know, like a bad cop scenarios where like they pull you over to search your, sh- your ship. And then one of the cops just like sticks a gun on the outside and goes, oh, what do we find here, Krogan? That's a that's a that's a weapon strapped to the outside of your ship. Looks like we need to space everybody. Time to walk the plank. 
and they're like, yeah. you son of a bitch, you put that there. Oh, yeah, well, prove much. it. Prove it, Krogan. Who's going to trust you? Yeah. Yeah, who's going to believe you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly offensive. Uh, and this was this is something that was definitely like commissioned by the council. Uh, so this is one of their decisions where uh, if you if you think about why the Krogan have such a chip on their shoulder about the rest of the galaxy come when you meet them in Mass Effect one, this part part of might be part of the reason why, because if, if this is going on all around Tuchanka and, and Krogan DMZ, mm-hmm. why the hell not become a mercenary? Yeah. They think you're breaking the law anyway. Yeah. You know, Um, the one good side to this is that there's probably a Krogan equivalent band equivalent of Rage Against the Machine. And it's just every band. And I bet they're freaking awesome. I bet they're really good. Rage Against the Council. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, they, they have all of these military space space stations, the CDEM does around Tuchanka, they regulate fuel sales and they manage the shroud, which supposedly keeps Tuchanka's surface within habitable temperatures. Interesting. So they're managing a technology which keeps the temperature suitable for life on Tuchanka. Are you telling me that can't be weaponized? Oh, that's totally a you know a power play. Yeah, like you mess with yes, us, definitely. we'll mess with the shroud. And so the 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 legislation that creates this body is just one. That's just one of the two pieces of legislation that I mentioned. The other one, well, you remember last episode we mentioned everything. Uh, oh, uh, we mentioned overarching legal actions taken by the council, most of them with huge impacts. Well, it turns out. A lot of these legal actions have historical reasons behind their choices. And so here's the second of these legislative actions that I was talking about that comes out of the Krogan rebellions. It's called the Citadel Conventions. And the Citadel Conventions are kind of like the Geneva Conventions. They are rules of engagement and they are basically weapon of mass destruction usage treaties. And I want to make a distinction here. They are not non-proliferation treaties. They do not say or pretend to be non-proliferation treaties. They are strictly guidelines for usage on how you can and can't use mm. WMDs. Mm. Um, and directly taken from the conventions, it says, quote, a WMD causes environmental alteration to a world. A bomb that produces a large crater is not considered a WMD. A bomb that causes nuclear winter is. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. It also states that no group can use WMDs on garden worlds, worlds that have ecosystems that are primed for supporting habitation, uh, like Earth, Palavan, Thessia, because those are hardly replaced. It takes millennia, like like actually yeah. like tens of thousands, millions of years, maybe, sure, uh, sure, to replace those kinds of worlds. But very interesting to note in the uh, Citadel conventions that WMDs are not forbidden on what they deem to be quote unquote hostile worlds or in space yeah guess who lives on a hostile world hmm <laughs> i don't know yeah <laughs> it's uh quite quite the mystery um i found it to be pretty interesting that the codex states that they are they are not forbidden on hostile worlds because that is a subjective qualifier yeah. hostile worlds that right. could that could mean any world that doesn't agree with what you're doing right um right so there's a big caveat in there yeah. for the council if they choose to if they choose to well you know what they probably did this uh, it's like they probably put that caveat in there for the usage of the genophage being retroactively justifiable but that's like designating your enemy a terrorist group right yeah like that's a very easy label to just put on somebody when you want to villainize them right like yes. what's the definition that's really foggy yeah yeah um and the wmds that they mention are put into descending tiers of threat level so number one is the most the highest threat level uh and at tier one they have listed quote unquote large kinetic impactors so these include asteroids or space debris that can be utilized as weapons Mm -hmm. and they they classify them as tier one threats because they are free they're available, <laughs> they're plentiful everywhere. And rogue groups like rogue states or terrorist organizations, 
these seem to be the weapons of choice for maximum levels of destruction. Right. So like throwing rocks out of the sky. Mm-hmm. At yeah. incredibly high speeds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anything anything at a fast enough velocity will convert into a large explosion as it converts yes. from energy to or from matter to energy. And you find a big enough asteroid and you're talking about making an entire planet uninhabitable. Yeah. yeah. That is exactly what some of the Krogan do during the rebellions to some of the Turian garden worlds. And this is why this policy becomes a thing. Uh, at least this this uh, tier of threat. And so this is explicitly forbidden. Um, it's also we see it again in the Bring Down the Sky DLC in Mass Effect 1. This is when a Batarian terrorist group led by a Batarian named Balak is threatening to send a uh, well, not threatening. They're they're actively working to make it happen. Uh, sending asteroid X-57 into a human colony called Terra Nova, New Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the heavily most heavily populated populated human colony outside of 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 earth of course uh so it it would cause unimaginable damage uh it would it would literally like wreck the entire planet and so that's just the first tier the second tier is quote unquote uncontrolled self-replication weapons which can include nanotechnology bioweapons or computer viruses. So pretty interesting that they could consider a WMD to be a computer virus. And they consider these to be the second highest threat level because the the danger is they can lie dormant for a long time and then picked up and people can transport them without ever knowing that they're that they're doing this. Yeah, well, it makes like, sense. A uh, technologically advanced civilization that could be completely crippled by a danger, dangerous enough virus. I mean, like a, a bioweapon could destroy large swaths of the population, but a dangerous enough computer virus could completely tank your economy. And then that would oh, yeah. that would cause people to starve to death. So they're both extremely dangerous. Yeah, widespread destruction could come from either one. Yeah. Um, tier three are the large energy burst weapons that we probably think of when we think of WMDs, so nukes, uh, but they, it also includes antimatter warheads. Tier four, this was interesting to me, invasive species mm-hmm. that have been, quote unquote, deliberately introduced to edge out a species by making their own world uninhabitable. Yeah, that seems very nefarious. You take a species <laughs> for not supposed to be on the planet, knowing that it will destroy the ecosystem. So, yeah, you and I both know that sometimes laws are written to be as vague as possible, but they're pointed. Yeah. Like, like the vague, the vague phrases are written for a point. And when I think of the Citadel conventions being written in the wake of the Krogan rebellions, and then they are writing this specific clause that they consider an invasive species deliberately introduced to a world. I think that they're classifying the Krogan as invasive species. Yeah, they could be. Yeah. Because they proliferate very quickly. Mm -hmm. They can edge out the existing uh, colonists. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty genius what they've done here. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and it, it kind of goes over everyone's head in Mass Effect, because if we're being honest, how many of us actually open this up and check out the exact clauses of the Citadel conventions in this game? Sure, sure. Right. It's it's yeah. not it's, something that we normally do. It's why we have a um, podcast, because then people will listen to us talk about it and they'll be like, oh, that's in there. And that's what that means. Oh, yeah. This was totally news to me. So that that's the Citadel conventions. That's the other legislative action that the Citadel Council takes in the wake of the Krogan rebellions. And I don't think that I really need to state again how impactful all of those clauses would be, especially because they can be politically weaponized. Uh, and I'm sure they are for thousands of years. So no wonder the Krogan have a chip on their shoulder about it. The other one that we mentioned, the Rachni Wars, well, there is a, a, a galactic law against activating dormant mass relays <laughs> because of the Salarian exploration team activating a dormant mass relay mm-hmm. and finding a hostile lobster bug species and that whole <laughs> mess. Right. Um, Right. So no more activating dormant mass relays that we don't know where they go. (laughs) That's that's the law. Uh, Makes sense. Logical conclusion. And humanity doesn't know this. Uh, Not 
not at the time that they activate the Charon mass relay mm -hmm. to exit the solar system. Right. Now this but leads there's to there's no way what, they could have known. So no, no, they couldn't have known that. And mm -hmm. I think the Asari and Solarians are understanding of that, but that understanding only comes after the first contact war or mm -hmm. what Turians refer to as the relay 314 incident. Um, and, and so it's, um, that we don't need to recap that. I think that was the very first episode or second. That's the second episode that we did. That one tensions escalate very quickly. Not that many people die in the grand scheme of things, but it sets the stage for humanity to be distrusted and humanity to distrust the Turians at the very least. Mm -hmm. Although nothing required the Turians to respond as harshly as they did. You know, like like we mentioned before, they were blown up entire city blocks to take out single strike teams of Marines. Right. Classic you know, overreact, overwhelming force from the Turians. Another example of the Citadel's uh, legislative making ability where they pass this thing that, that really has this profound impact on the rest of the series. They have a strict ban on making artificial intelligence because of the danger it can pose to society. Mm. The Corians and the Geth of course, the coins create the Geth and then the Geth rebel. And we also had an episode on that. I believe that's in the first 10 episodes. <laughs> right. um, this episode is just going to be me referring people back to like, <laughs> go, go back, <laughs> listen to the other yeah. happy one year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this ban existed before the Koreans created the Geth and they were aware that they were tiptoeing and possibly breaking Citadel law as the Geth gained sentience and the Koreans were quite well aware of the, po the threat that that posed to not just the immediate threat of, 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 of them being overtaken by the AI that they've created, but also the political threat of being ostracized. Um, and then we see this, we see this, uh, this strict ban on AI from the council being referenced again in Mass Effect Revelation, the book. Um, that is the one that, that is a prequel to Mass Effect 1. It takes place directly beforehand. And more or less, the Citadel finds out, courtesy of their specter, Saren Arterius, that humanity had been researching artificial intelligence on one of the Alliance's research stations on planet Sidon. Uh, Great story in that book. Can't recommend it enough. Not going to go into that one too much more until we cover the external media. But that's another one of the examples where the council has these very far reaching legislative abilities. They don't need, you know, they don't need uh, permission from the individual species governments to make these things, apparently. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. In, in, indeed. I feel like this is a law lesson right now. Um, <laughs> and, and we're not done yet. Uh, but I saw in chat here uh, that uh, one of our, our viewers, uh, De Musica, had said the Treaty of Phyrexin. And this is this is relevant because the Quarians are intricately involved in this at some point in the story. Um, well, this is the Treaty of Phyrexin. If it doesn't sound familiar to you, don't feel bad. This is a very little known piece of binding legislation that, again, comes from the Citadel Council. But it's a big deal on the Milky Way because it's a treaty that limits council races, meaning those who are on the council or those who have an embassy. So it limits them from how powerful their navy can be. It is effectively a way to ensure that the Turians remain the big dog on the block, the peacekeeping force. I'm not sure exactly when it was originally pinned. I'm certain that it was written before humanity entered the galactic stage, but it is an agreement that every council race has to sign. Yeah, I remember you talking about this before, and I'm very interested to get into the details, but we do have to take a break. Got to do the mid-break, and we've got a review and a planet card. So we're going to go do that, and we'll be right back. Message coming in. Patching it through. I am sovereign, and this station is mine. I like the sound of that. 
All right, here we are in the middle of the show, and on these episodes, we read out the reviews if we have any. And so, thank you to Ashley12 for leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is a place where if you do leave us a five star review with some words, we'll read it out on a future episode of the show. This one says, Very well done, robot. Well, thank you, Ashley12. Um, I enjoy listening to the Mass Effect podcast and the Mass Effect and the Elder Scrolls podcast. I'm sorry. I read, I was going to read the same thing twice. That's silly of me. Uh, thank you. I'm glad you listened to both of those shows. It gets me through my day at work and Tom is always positive and upbeat. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, Ashley 12 didn't say anything about uh, Sam on this, but I'm going to add in and Sam is devilishly handsome. We'll just pretend that Ash said that as well. So yeah, he's doing a hand a heart sign. You can't see it because it's an audio platform, but there you go. Uh, appreciate the uh, the review. Thank you for doing that. Take the time to do that. Also, if you would like to leave any, um, any, you can't leave reviews, but ratings on Spotify, you can do that as well. We mentioned on the last podcast that we've now eclipsed 200 on Spotify. Thank you so much for doing that. These very are very, very helpful to help to helping us uh, rank on both of those platforms. And so if you listen on either of those or on anything else that allows you to rate and review the show, it, it helps us out. So thanks so much. And telling your friends is also helpful as well. Sam, we have a, uh, a planet card. Planet card time. Yeah. Ah. Is this one, is it the name of this one? I'm, I'm looking at it. Is it Tartarus? Tar it is. Tartar? Tart? Tartarus? Ta isn't that like Tetris. a Greek myth thing? Uh, it's close. It's Tetris. Oh, uh, oh. Probably too close to be coincidence. Oh, uh, okay. And also, I'm <laughs> feeling some serious Doctor Who vibes. Mm. Uh, but in, 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 in this isn't actually a planet card per se. It is the description of a planet, but it is not a planet card. So... Um, I did want to throw this in because it is relevant uh, to the episode, and I think everyone will be able to tell. But basically, very briefly, um, here's what it says in the lore. In 2185, Tetris fell into crisis when a Turian separatist group named as name, known as Facinus reprogrammed the faster-than-light plotter of a starship and rammed the ship at near-FTL speeds into the heart of Valum, the colony's capital city, killing tens of thousands of people. This terrorist attack prompted the Turian hierarchy and Tatrian colon colonialist forces to invade Facinus's uh, strongholds and systematically eliminate the separatists in a short, decisive conflict called the War on Tatris. So uh, that is the uh, description of the planet. And of course, the significance here is that this is a flagrant breach of the Citadel conventions. Yeah, that doesn't seem like something they'd be cool with. <laughs> no, probably yet another <laughs> no. reason that the Citadel Council included that as a clause in the Citadel conventions. Like, hey, maybe don't do this to uh, to garden worlds and colonies. Yeah. Uh, please. And thank you. Cool. Everybody, everyone just be cool out there. Thanks. That's that's what the end of the the document says. Everyone just also please just be cool. Thanks. Council. That's the, the final line. Um, but anyway, thanks for checking out the middle of the show. Also, hey, are you on our, our Robots Radio Discord yet, where we all chat about stuff like Mass Effect? If you're not, come join us. It's easy to find. It's in the in the show notes. There's a link. Or you just search Robots Radio Discord. Or it's on the Robots Radio website, robotsradio.net. Come join us and chat. All right, let's move on with the rest of the show. Spit it out. Or are you trying to build suspense? You're so dense, sir. Obviously, I do not know as much about human relationships as I thought. So, about the Treaty of Firaxin, what exactly happens there, and why is that so important? So, at the Firaxin Naval Conference, the Council races uh, agreed to a to fix a ratio of how many dreadnoughts we can think of them as battleships. Uh, how many battleships that any one race could possess because of how much damage that they could do. And at the, and we can think of this ratio as uh, the, 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 an inverted pyramid. Those mm. at the top are allowed to have the most. Those at the bottom are allowed to have the least. So at the top of this inverted pyramid is the Turian hierarchy. No surprise. Uh, the council would like to keep them as the peacekeeping force. And then the council member races are below them. 
So that means the Asari and the Salarians. Mm-hmm. The council associate races like the Hanar, the Volus, the uh, Drell, and uh, yeah, like Elcor, you name it, uh, they are at the bottom of the list. The people who are not associates of the, of this, of the council are not on the list. So keep that in mind. So we have a three tier pyramid. On these three tiers, the ratio is five to three to one. So for every five dreadnoughts or battleships that the Turians have, the Asari and Salarians can have three and the associate races can have one. Yeah, got it. It is a very strict hierarchy for maintaining the status quo. And a couple of interesting things to note here. Uh, From the time that humanity gets an embassy on the Citadel to the end of Mass Effect 1, and this is a period of about 26 years, the humanity is bound by this treaty. So it means that humanity is qualified as an associate race during this time. Humanity can only have one dreadnought or battleship for every five the Turians have. But us humans are crafty, right? <laughs> right. We, we know how to get around. Uh, we know we know how to find loopholes, and that is exactly what humanity does. Uh, they get around the stipulations by instead making their navy centered around not dreadnoughts, not battleships, but carriers, like aircraft carriers, right. but for space, space carrying carriers. other ships and people. And the Treaty of Frickson does not cap or even address the. Uh, construction of carriers. So for anyone that is a student of history, this probably sounds very, very familiar. And it's like, it it kind of is like the writers ripped this right out of the history textbooks, because right around the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was this guy, I think his first name was Alfred Mahan, Mahanian naval theory. Mahanian naval theory stipulated that any uh, modern state's navy needed to be centered around big guns on big ships, mm-hmm. battleships, dreadnoughts. Uh, and Mahanian naval theory was quickly disproven after World War One and in World War Two, because the United States was the world's first Navy to embrace the aircraft carrier as the centerpiece of a modern Navy. And it took off for a couple of reasons. One, there was <laughs> a thing off. called the Wa- Sorry. Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) You hit the thrusters on that one. Oh yeah, all systems go. Uh, It took off for a number of reasons. It really propelled forward. Propelled forward. I don't, (sighs) I don't, I'm too tired to think of more, but I wish I could. you could wing it, you know. Oh my God. I'm glad that you're picking up the slack on on my uh, dad jokes today. It's okay. I'll pilot Um, this for you. (laughs) (laughs) This is this is insane. Um, We'll just, you know, just get back in the cockpit. (laughs) Keep going. Um, So the Washington Navy Naval Treaty of 1922 was signed by the United States, Great Britain, Japan, France, and Italy. This is real world. This isn't Mass Effect lore. Um, And it was an attempt at maintaining peace and equal power in Navy after World War One. Of course, that didn't work out. Um, And it regulated the amount of battleships that, that any standing Navy could have. So basically was trying to make sure that peace was maintained through equal footing. The United States started getting around that by producing a lot of aircraft carriers, but they did this for another reason. They saw they saw a lot of success with aircraft carriers in the Atlantic in World War II mm-hmm. because they were very effective deterrents against German U-boats. Uh, right, because so, the planes could spot the boats from the air. Exactly, yeah. and there's not much the boats can do against the planes. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So... Uh, so yeah, that's the that's the real life naval uh, equivalent, and so you can see the the obvious similarities here between the Washington Naval Treaty, Mahanian Naval Theory, and the uh, Dreadnoughts and the Treaty of Frickson. Very very clear parallels, and the Systems Alliance basically mimics what the United States military does. So. When humanity gets a seat on the council in Mass Effect, we're back to Mass Effect lore. (laughs) When humanity gets a seat on the council after Mass Effect 1, then 
human diplomats argue that they are now on legal footing to build as many dreadnoughts as the Asari and the Salarians. But Man. they still have a fuck ton of carriers. Yeah. Man, you really brought us in for a landing on that one. Oh my God. <laughs> that was, <laughs> uh, let's take a second and just like applaud. Uh, <sighs> uh, Is it easy being the king of dad jokes? Uh, I, I might have eclipsed you on one of the pre- previous episodes. I think I might have gotten a, like one more than you did. You'll, you'll catch up though. Don't worry. Don't worry. You really you just, stuck the landing. I mean, yes. thank you. You just, I mean, I know you'll hit that afterburner button on the next episode and then you'll, you'll catch up. Go full, full turbo mm-hmm. speed. Yeah. yeah. Highway to the um, danger zone, buddy. <laughs> I got to listen to that song. Um, so this uh this now power dynamic where now the hum- the humans can create just as many dreadnoughts as the Asari and Salarians probably not welcome news for the for the aliens who were already worried about human ambition and human military might uh at the beginning of Mass Effect 1 because they were already worried and now with them being admitted to the council post Mass Effect 1 this sets it up for now, okay, our established peacekeeping force is kind of getting a run for their money. Humanity already had a lot of carriers, proved to be quite useful, uh, and now they can make more dreadnoughts. This is possibly why there are estimates in the Mass Effect universe that the Alliance will overtake the Turian hierarchy and military strength within Shepard's generation's lifetime. And that's notwithstanding the events of the Reaper War. That's crazy. It's crazy to think that humanity hasn't spread to multiple worlds and yet can still construct enough. I mean, if, think about these other races. They're they're multi-world races. Oh, yeah. Well, so is humanity at this point. Humanity yeah. does yeah. have multiple colonies and yeah. they've spread very quickly. Right. But but they're still like they're still young when it comes to expanding to these other worlds you're right they, oh, yeah. they have expanded like 26 out. years right. one generation right one generation that's i guess that's that's the better point to make they, they have but like when when i'm talking about one world they have like one fully developed world with colonies whereas yes like the turians had entire garden planets destroyed by the krogan yeah, yeah like they were um, multi they're a multi-world civilization they you know what now that you bring it into it i'm probably i'm thinking that the citadel council might be very worried they could be dealing with another krogan race because i mean think about it like if you are a a race that has multiple planets worth of resources and manpower to build a navy a space navy and yet the humans can match that like does earth have that many resources compared to the average other garden planet like that seems amazing insane right that seems insane (laughs) or the numbers were just really small because for the most part they just didn't need that many battleships like i think part of it was facilitated by the fact that humanity was willing to expand and colonize worlds no one else was with the exception of the batarians yeah but i'm just even just thinking on like uh like a resources you know concept like the amount of materials like sure output the amount of materials that would be needed from the planet earth to make that much uh you know that many ships the amount of manpower to man those ships like how many ships do you think are in a you know a galactic armada like how many battleships do you think the turians actually have like it's a five to three to one ratio is that five five hundred is that five five thousand like what is that number it could very well just be five um, because I know right. that the, the Volus only have one dreadnought, the yeah. dreadnought Quunu. Okay, so maybe maybe the numbers are that small. And in that case, the humans, if let's say they maybe they made 12 carriers and that was enough to make people go, whoa, they've got 12 carriers, <laughs> you know, like, holy crap, <laughs> yeah. that's a lot, you know. It's it's likely higher than five, but you know the the Volus might not be capped at one, but they probably just don't have the capability or the desire to make more than one because they're a client race of the right. Turians anyway. <laughs> they're just kind of um, like okay. <laughs> well, not they don't talk like that. That would be the um, the Elcor. Elcor. But, yeah. <laughs> but okay, <laughs> I can't do a Volus voice right now. Anyway, 
Moving on. We've, yeah. we've still got a lot to finish on this episode. <laughs> I've been a little so, distracting, it seems. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we see a few more instances in the game where this Treaty of Ferrixen plays a commanding role in interspecies politics. Uh, real quick, you know, if Shepard chooses to leave the council to die in Mass Effect 1, then in Mass Effect 2, we hear reports that Turians are willfully leaving the Treaty of Ferrixen and ramping up their shipbuilding anyway. Uh, so probably some sincere distrust of humanity here because, hey, the human specter just made the call to abandon the, abandon the council and, and kill them. Uh, this, uh, this rapidly rising military might just forsake our council. You know, maybe we should hedge our bets here. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. And then later in Mass Effect 3, see, this is what uh, De Musica was talking about. In Mass Effect 3, we hear the Corian migrant fleet is strapping salvaged Thanix cannons to their live ships and basically making them into dreadnoughts. But the Admiralty contends that this is not a violation of the treaty because A, live ships are designed for agriculture, but the war means they need to defend themselves. And B, they reference the council stripping them of their embassy. And therefore, they are not a council member or an associate race, so they're not bound to this treaty anyway. Okay, so interesting. So it seems that the council takes a lot of action when it comes to defense and conflict uh, mediation, but what else do they have their hands in? You could say everything. Um, the lore might support that. It's not that big of a jump. I mean, they have committees on on under their authority that research preventable diseases, terraforming, paleo technology, and even finance. Uh, back in the Volus episode, you know, we talked about something called the the Unified Banking Act. Well, because the Volus economy was so developed, the council deferred to their expertise in creating something called the Unified Banking Act, which created the credit currency the standard galactic currency and set up the, the economy of the Milky Way as we know it in Mass Effect. The Volus drafted this legislation and the Volus serve as its regulators, but it was requisitioned and overseen by the Citadel Council. So they have wide ranging fiscal policy uh, powers as well mm -hmm. because they're rewriting the entire galactic economy here. Yeah. And it is an opt in system but if you're not opting in if you're not participating then you're probably missing out on a ton <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah uh, according to lord the act also laid out regulatory guidelines for determining the value and exchange rate of the credit in relation to the currencies of the individual citadel member races so no one here is is having to get rid of their individual currencies it means humans with us dollars could purchase something with credits at quote fair market value Okay. So, yeah. So it's not, it's an opt in measure where it doesn't appear to have any serious negative repercussion if you opt in. But if you opt out, it makes your life a little harder uh, as a society. And remember, we said the creation of the council was so important. And you remember, you, you, you mentioned time, and I said that we'd get to that. Mm -hmm. Well, we're getting to that. The Milky Way species created a new galactic standard calendar with its formation as year zero. Right. But they also did that with time measurement. Yeah. So how so, does this work? If you've ever wondered about how races communicate effectively about like, hey, uh, little Therex, why don't we meet up at the bar at, you know, 70 blur o'clock yeah is this 70 blur o'clock my my planet or your planet <laughs> which time right. zone on which planet yeah exactly because not all worlds have the same length of daytime not sure. all worlds revolve the same speed um so you know it's this it's this uh galactic standard time system and it's shared and here's how it works a galactic standard day comprises 20 earth hours 20 earth hours but why earth <laughs> well this is just a method of translating it for human beings and so this is part okay. of the codex right and we have to keep in mind that the codex is a general issued handbook to all alliance personnel right um, so, so exactly 20 earth hours it comes out 20 exactly evenly I'm, I'm guessing so <laughs> one galactic standard day comprises 20 earth hours one hour in galactic standard time is 100 minutes in Earth seems time. very convenient that it's, it does, it's doesn't it? Even, yeah. 
that it's exact units. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Each minute is made up of 100 seconds. Mm-hmm. So it's like a metric system for time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, each second is half as long as a human second. So what all of this means, wait, wait, if you don't what? do the... <laughs> wait a minute. That's weird. If you don't want to do the calculations, what all of this means is every galactic standard day is about 27 hours, 46 minutes long in Earth time. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I misspoke when I said 20 hours comprises 20 hours. That's that's 20 galactic hours. Okay. Yeah. So every galactic standard day is 27 hours, 46 minutes long in Earth time. So the second is the is the common denominator. A, a second is the same thing as a half a second in Earth yes. time. Okay, so that's the connecting point. Yes. Okay. Um, so this would also mean that every human would be nominally younger in galactic standard time. Yeah. Because each day yeah. takes up more hours. Right. That would be weird because humans don't work on a 27, almost 28 hour cycle. Right. It's and I think that there's accounts. We hear accounts of humans having a hard time adjusting to the Citadel when they get there. Oh, yeah. People are going to be like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell time is it? I don't know. It says it's twenty eight (laughs) o'clock. I need to go to bed. (laughs) Is it is twenty eight o'clock the morning or night? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's super weird. They must have like UV lights in some of the rooms on your ships and things. <laughs> I think that's actually referenced. I know at the very least that it's referenced in Mass Effect Andromeda as uh, benefiting the Angara because mm-hmm. they rely on ultraviolet light. And if they don't get it, they become clinically depressed. I mean, people do, too. Like it's it's part of our main source of vitamin D. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And scurvy. You know, well, scurvy is vitamin C, right? But um, but like uh, same thing. But like getting enough light and UV is also has to do with, um, you know, uh, wind, like what is it? Seasonal depressive syndrome and all that, too. Hmm. So, yeah. um, but anyway, uh, so, OK, so we're getting close to the end, we, but we need to talk about the counselors. Do you think we can squeeze this in? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we know surprisingly little about who the counselors are. We know their names. We've met them, but it heavily depends on Shepard's actions at the mass at the end of Mass Effect one. And if the Destiny Ascension, the Citadel Council uh, fleet's flagship, is destroyed or not. And it's destroyed, basically, you know, you remember at the end of Mass Effect 1, you get the choice to save the Council or not. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't save the Council, obviously there's a new Council. So the old Council, who could be still your Council if you just save the Council, who is the Asari member... Tavos. Tavos is known for being a, a very stereotypical mediator, diplomat, level-headed compromiser, but still advocates for a sorry space. Her replacement, if she dies, is Irissa, who can kind of come across as cold, less of a diplomat, certainly more blunt, not as willing to take human shit. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the human specter didn't like uh, didn't like the last council. Let you die. I don't think that you're going to be a big fan of him. Uh, or her yeah and uh now the salarian uh valern valern is the original uh salarian counselor will still be the counselor if you've chosen to save them valern is a big proponent of intelligence gathering before any action is taken not a surprise you remember at the beginning of the last episode i said the citadel counselors are basically representative of characteristics that we are supposed to prescribe to each race right right so valen is very very much that way uh Valen's replacement is shiel definitely more of a salarian centric advocate and certainly more of a hardliner refers to valen as being weak so that's about the extent of that and then interestingly here's where it kind of differs in the pattern uh the turian counselor spartus which is so close to spartacus it hurts yes um yeah. Spartus uh, is kind of just a dick <laughs> to Shepard, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and and definitely isn't a fan of humanity. Uh, Spartus 
is, and by the way, um, while we're on the topic of Turian counselors, we also know that air quotes are canonized in the Mass Effect universe because the Turian counselor uses them, but because they have three fingers, he just uses his index finger and his thumb. Um, but that is canon. That that is that is somehow a uh, galactic body body language thing. Be funny if he was anyway, making fun of uh, humans. <laughs> that, that I, you know what? I never thought about that, but it very well could be a slight against humanity, right? <laughs> oh, this yeah, thing you guys do. <laughs> I don't quite understand it, but <laughs> right. yeah, we'll do that anyway. Um, interestingly, Spartacus's replacement, Quintius is the only counselor to appear more open to cooperation after the destiny ascension is destroyed the other two you know seem to become more hardliners so the guy who was a hardliner switches and the other two who seemed a little bit more cooperative switch personally i also think that all of them have such little separating them and ultimately they're still making the same decisions they're still the same politicians of course that could be a narrative tool for trying to drive the narrative forward yeah. i also think that, that that could be an intentional uh point from the writers because they the writers may have been trying to say that no matter what the system is the system and these are politicians yeah and they're going to look out for number one no matter what but the interesting thing is and this is a very important point and i could be wrong and i hope i hope that i am because i'd rather have an explanation for it than not and if you if you find something in the lore if you're listening to this and you find something in the lore where you can prove me wrong please let me know because i do i i was looking far and wide for this today but i couldn't find it we don't know the process from which counselors are chosen we only know how shepherd chooses anderson or udina but that's like an you know uh like an extraordinary circumstance mm -hmm. sovereign invades and blows up half the citadel right that's, that's uh, not the normal occurrence no <laughs> yeah. um so yeah it's it's um we don't we don't really have an idea of the exact process which in my mind sheds a lot of doubt about how those counselors got there you know how corrupt are they what kind of uh deals did they make do they prescribe to the old adage that politics is a whore's game i don't know <laughs> right so okay so you did mention humanity gets a spot on the council but you didn't mention a human counselor mm, very astute yes mm -hmm. i did i did not mm -hmm. um and that, that's right and that's because as we wrap up this first year of the lore cast we are going to transition more toward episodes covering individual characters and both choices for those counselors, Anderson and Udina should certainly get their own episodes. Nice. So what does that mean for next week? So next week, that means that we're going to be covering Donnell Udina. And if that episode's end, I haven't, I haven't really looked at how much prep I'm going to need for that episode. If it ends up being a two-parter, it ends up being a two-parter just on Udina. Uh, and if not, then I'm going to try and make it Udina plus maybe another topic that could be related or unrelated or scientific one. We'll yeah, see. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Awesome. Well, this has been super cool, man. Congrats to wrapping up a year. And thank you to all of our listeners for sticking this out. If you've, if you've listened to all the episodes over this last year, thank you for being here. Thank you for hanging out with us. We really do appreciate you listening. It, this is a lot of work to put together, um, you know, uh, doing the research on the research side. Sam's obviously the research side of this on the production side and both of us, you know, getting this out there, sharing it, posting stuff, you know, putting all the work together. Um, thank you for just being here and being a part of this. We really do appreciate you guys and are glad that you're here and nerding out about awesome things with us thank you for being part of this community and sam do you have anything else you want to share before we go uh well yeah i just want to say that it's 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 been an amazing year uh and you know i can't think of any other fandom i'd rather do this with you know you all are amazing uh you've gotten me through some very personally some personally some very tough times you know I, i've spoken a little bit uh openly about it in private channels but when i first moved to portland it was not easy going three months without finding a job and i don't even want to imagine what my life would be like if i didn't have this light at the end of every day 
you know, uh, this community that has really uh, rallied around and given, you know, my days a purpose, even when they were pretty dark. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope everyone that listens to this podcast knows what a big deal it is to me uh, that you're all here. And uh, this year has been amazing. And here's to many more. Well, and that's awesome. If you want to follow me on Twitch at N7Legend, same with Twitter. <laughs> yeah, dude. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for being here, everybody. And um, of course, all my stuff's at robotsradio.net. And of course, you can always tune in and join us on Monday nights at the uh, Robots Radio channels on Twitch and on YouTube. And of course, there's also where I stream my other stuff. You're welcome to join me there and check out any of our shows and the rest of the community. Also, there are lots of shows on Robots Radio, all of our Rocket Club shows, the shows that I help mentor and get their other sh- their other podcasts up and going. Lots of great creators making really cool stuff. So go check out their stuff. And if you're interested in starting your own show, check out the website, robotsradio.net. Always happy to work with new podcasters, new creators, and help you guys get your shows off the ground, making your your shows and helping you create awesome stuff. Um, I love working with our community and and those of you who want to make things. So uh, thanks for being here, everyone. And we will be back next week to talk about some new stuff and start start off on year two. It's going to be awesome. So we'll see you guys then. Until then, just have an awesome week and a great weekend. And we'll see you guys later. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the Mass Effect Lorecast. We'd love to hear your opinion and thoughts on the lore of Mass Effect. Reach out to us on Twitter at Mass Effect Cast or check out the Robots Radio Discord. Also, you can send us an email at Mass Effect Lorecast at gmail.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.